All right, good morning. Hope you're doing great. This morning's 8.30 service was a test to see who wanted to beat everybody else to KFC for Mother's Day lunch, right? I mean, who doesn't want like a chicken breakfast bowl for uh, Mother's Day feast? So you guys win. You'll beat the crowd. Really uh, glad that, uh, that you are here. Happy Mother's Day uh, to you. If your mom in the room, we uh, honor you this day, recognizing that you put in countless hours of love and service and prayer um, for us and for your children. We are thankful for that. Make sure people tell you that a ton today. Uh, but we also recognize that days are kind of weird, and particularly Hallmark days like this, that for the number of you that this day conjures up really good images and thoughts, there's a whole nother crew of you that it conjures up negative images and thoughts of loss and perhaps the relationship with mom that you don't really have or some of you that long to have children that can't at this point. This provides a great opportunity for us to Weep with those who weep and laugh with those who laugh, right? Cry with those of you that are burdened by this day and rejoice with those of you that find joy in this day. And there's certainly no way from a pulpit and a microphone to minister specifically to each one of those camps. So we trust that the Spirit will comfort you this day if that's what's most needed. We'll give you joy and encouragement this day if that's what's most needed. You may have recognized that around TCC we very rarely take a Sunday and hold it up and do like a standalone Sunday where we uh, take the whole service and celebrate moms or uh, take the whole service and do like a July 4th patriotic Sunday. The reason we don't do that, there's probably a host of reasons, but one of the reasons is because doing that has the uh, subtle ability to redirect our attention from the gospel and the claims of Christ to very human things that are meant, even in their best days, they're meant to redirect our attention to the nature and character of God. That's what moms are meant to do. Like the things that we love and cherish about moms are in some way this microcosmic reflection of what we know to be true about God. And the things that you long for, perhaps miss about your mom, are a reflection of the nature and character of God. So these days are meant to bounce our eyes from this very human-centered deal to God and his nature and character. So we think the best thing we can do is just kind of stay the course on Sundays, keep our attention fixed on God, on the gospel, and trust that that will minister and encourage us in the day-to-day -day grind of life. Now, we're going to test that theory a bit today because I don't know who was planning the teaching calendar uh, for this sermon series, but we're going to talk about the wrath of God on Mother's Day. Uh, that is a joy. All right, so, uh, so we're going to test uh, God's ability and trust that he can uh, connect this sermon to the specific needs uh, that you have as you come. So uh, if you would pray with me as you do, um, as you leave this morning, you're a mom here in the basket in front of me, we have a gift to you from uh, the church and the staff just to say thanks, that we love you. So if you would, as you leave this morning, drop by, pick one of these up. Uh, you're welcome to take one and give it to your mom as well. Uh, love you, really thankful for you. So join me as we pray. God, we <coughs> do desire to fix our thoughts and our affections on your nature and character, to be reminded of the sure confidence of the hope of the gospel, the beauty of Christ, 
And we're thankful that in, in this life you have given us reflectors of your image that you've put a- around us. For many of us, mom plays that role. We are thankful for that. Thankful that we don't do life alone, that we can know you by virtue of seeing you displayed in other people. We ask that your spirit would do the work that only your spirit can do, which is bring comfort and peace and ministry by the teaching of your word to us all in our places of need. Would you do that today as we direct our attention to your word for Christ's sake? Amen. Amen. So if you have a copy of the Bible, you can open it to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 will serve as our text. We're going to jump back to the book of Romans as well uh, during our time together. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, the end of verse 3, will serve uh, as our anchor for us. But in way of introduction, uh, you probably have a friend, perhaps a family member, who has gone through what we might call a Christian phase. Sadly, this is an all-too-common reality, particularly among people in a younger demographic. Some writers, um, particularly in the New York Times, have claimed that Christianity in the United States now functions like a fashion symbol, something that you put on, try on for a period of time when it has some benefit to you, and then outgrow and easily dismiss. This is the classic Christian youth camp syndrome come to adults, right? I feel bad for my sin. I think Christianity has some benefit to me. I profess faith. Perhaps I'm even baptized in that last six months, a year, year and a half, whatever the case may be. This is the reason that you might speak to people, and I often do in our culture, that will claim I've been saved like 10 or 11 times. By this, people unknowingly admit that they have absolutely no understanding of what it actually means to be saved. So this is the primary motive for our current series. We're looking at one of Paul's most famous paragraphs in an effort to discern what it truly means to be saved, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a, a child of God. What are you saved from and what are you saved to? We've seen up to this point that all humans, this is verse 1 of Ephesians 2, that all humans are dead in their trespasses and sins. You can't escape that reality. By virtue of being born in Adam, you are born in sin. As a result, secondarily, what Hugh taught two weeks ago, they, the result is a world system opposed to the things of God, which we are increasingly going to see in the U.S. culture, right? A world system opposed to the things of God, one that, unfortunately, by virtue of our deadness and trespasses and sins, we, un- we follow consistently. We follow willingly and culpably, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is how we all once walked apart from Christ. And then, thirdly, The outcome, what Alex taught last week, the outcome is all sorts of sins of our flesh and our mind that result from our deadness and sin following the world system. Then these come out in all sorts of flesh and mind sins, stealing towels from the Y, right? Uh, This week, we're going to culminate that progression by seeing that all humans are accountable to God. Could there be any more countercultural claim than that one? 
None of us like accountability, right? None of you like accountability, nor do I. Built into the framework of the modern culture is the notion that I'm the master of my fate, answerable to no one for my actions. The Bible is going to fly in the face of that claim. R.C. Sproul writes, If anything has been lost from our culture, it is the idea that human beings are privately, personally, individually, and ultimately accountable to God for their lives. This is what we see in Ephesians 2, verse 3. Paul writes, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body, of, I'm sorry, of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. By nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's the phrase, the two phrases that we want to zero our attention on this morning. One claim with universal application. The claim we were by nature children of wrath, the universal application like all the rest of mankind. All those who are in Adam by virtue of birth, which would be all of us, are children of God's wrath. That is fascinating language, isn't it? That our family relationship with God apart from Christ, is not most closely to his love, but rather to his wrath. This phrase indicates a set-apart class of people, those who are God's wrath bearers. So, the question then is, how is God's wrath revealed? Let's answer that question two ways. Turn with me back to Romans chapter 1. We'll do a little bit of Bible drill this morning. Romans chapter 1. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. Please use this time to familiarize yourself with the Scriptures. Don't be afraid to go to the table of contents. I still do it. I can't find those little minor prophets to save my life, right? So don't, be, don't feel awkward doing that. Use it. To try to find these verses so that you can use them during the week in your own personal quiet time. Romans chapter 1. Uh, beginning in verse 24, Paul, after arguing about the greatness of God through Christ, the fact that we have all exchanged worship of the glory of God for worship of glory of created things, says this, Therefore, I'm in Romans 1, verse 24, Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. So as good Bible readers, we read a paragraph like that, and we know that one of the keys to picking out what a biblical author thought was important in the days before 29 smiley faces and exclamation marks was to see what's repeated. So looking in the text, we see something repeated three times. The phrase, God gave them up. So we might say this, on the one hand, God's wrath is revealed somewhat indirectly. God's wrath is revealed indirectly. 
by God giving people up. This language is similar to what Pilate did to Jesus in giving him up, handing him over to be crucified. God's wrath is built into the foundation of the world system in that people receive in themselves the due consequence for their sin. For this reason, sin is suicide. It is killing ourselves. By rejecting God's rule and reign, we cause our own destruction. Now, this is a present reality for those apart from Christ that God gives them over. In some ways, C.S. Lewis writes that God says, you want your will to be done, then your will be done. And he hands them over. Now, constantly ongoing. And notice this language. Who does the action? This is not simply the natural result of sin running its course, but rather this is God saying, have at it. You want it, have at it. So the consequences that we bring upon ourselves by virtue of our sin is indicative of the wrath of God on one hand. Okay. This God indirectly giving us over to his wrath. Then there is the direct wrath of God, and this is more what we want to talk about this morning. Turn over one paragraph, perhaps one page, to Romans chapter 2. The direct wrath of God. This is the passage that many of you considered in small groups this week. Paul begins by arguing that the Jews, uh, in their judgment of other people, are actually condemning themselves. They point out the sins of other people, and Paul argues, but you, by virtue of judging them, are committing the very same sins yourselves. So, he writes in verse 3, Do you suppose, O men, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet you do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? So here, the judgment of God language is pictured as a future and final reality. So whereas the indirect judgment of God is this ongoing consequence for our sin, God handing people over to feel the weight of their foolish choices, here there is a future and final judgment that Paul points that is coming for people as a result of their sin. At times, this direct judgment may be swift and total, and now, like Lot's wife, right? Or like the destruction that God brought on the pagan nations in the Old Testament, like Deuteronomy 20, where he tells the Israelites, just go and wipe everyone out, I'm done. Or like the flood, I'm fed up with humanity, done. There's this finality finished. But often, this judgment is in the future, an undefined time in the future when God will judge people for their sin. This is pictured by the great pastor Jonathan Edwards in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, as a spider building a web over an open fire. That any minute, that microscopic thread that holds that spider up above the fire is going to snap and he will be obliterated. Now, we don't, in our soft, fluffy American culture, we don't preach sermons like that anymore. But that's the picture of the wrath of God. This future and final judgment that will be total. So, he writes in verse 4, Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness 
is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So here's Paul's logic. Paul says that the intervening time between God's indirect judgment and his direct judgment is meant to do something to us. What's it meant to do? It's meant to lead us to repentance, right? That would be Paul's argument. God's kindness, and by kindness here, Paul's saying this space between the indirect and the direct judgment is meant to lead you to repentance. This is not careless oversight of God. It's not as if he is a parent, like we went to the pool yesterday in our neighborhood. I'm like, what are parents doing? Like, they're just dabbling on their phone with like 18-month-old in the kiddie pool, right? Right, just mindless, lost in another place. This is not the way that God is operating in our world. He is not the grumpy old grandpa that's kind of senile that you're getting away with something behind his back. He's watching, he's waiting, this oversight is intentional, and any time that you are given, Paul writes, demonstrates the riches of God's kindness. The riches, the wealth of God's kindness. The temptation is to assume that God is just looking the other way, that because of my sin, that because my sin does not have immediate consequences, it will not have any consequences. And Paul says, be warned. And not only be warned of this future deal, but notice this phrase. This is interesting. In the meantime, you are storing up God's wrath. Hmm. So this is not some fixed finality, but simply, but right now, in the intervening time, apart from Christ, you are literally storing up wrath from God. The picture throughout the scriptures is of God's wrath as a cup. The cup of God's wrath. Psalm 50, I'm sorry, Psalm 75, 8, the psalmist writes says, For in the hand of the Lord is a cup with foaming wine, mixed wine, and he pours it out, pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah 51 uses the same language. And the hand of the Lord is a cup of his wrath. The picture here of Paul is that apart from Christ, you in your sin are literally filling up the cup of God's wrath. Storing it up. And now, for a moment, it is held back, but it will not be held back forever. The picture that comes to my mind is... Uh, uh, around the time of a hurricane, I love to go to the Outer Banks, around the time of a hurricane, uh, that little island gets washed out consistently. So what do they attempt to do? They attempt to push back the ocean by putting sandbags up, right? So the sandbags in some way will hold back the onslaught of the coming waves. This is the picture of God's wrath, that it is some way held back right now, but one day it will come. So, Every day you live apart from a relationship with God, you are doing two things. You are experiencing the wealth of God's kindness in that you're still living, and you are storing up the wrath of God. Experiencing the wealth of God's kindness in that you are still living, and you're storing up the wrath of God. 
So this is an all-too-common way we speak of eternity, and perhaps the most common way that Americans associate their eternal destiny is using some type of scale method. We bought this for a dollar at a yard sale this weekend because my wife homeschools and she liked the little buckets of the scales here. All right, so this is, this is the language that people often use to speak of their eternal destiny. That in some sense, I am living and operating, doing some bad things and some good things filling up the respective tubs. And ultimately, on the final day of judgment, if there is a God, when I stand before him, the hope will be that in some way my good bucket tips the scales a bit over my bad bucket, and God lets me into right relationship with him. This could not be further from the language of the scriptures. Here's the biblical verdict. The biblical verdict, I got some change for my friends this morning. The biblical verdict is that apart from Christ, you are simply accumulating in this bucket. This method works if it's possible to store up anything in this bucket. But the language of the scriptures tells us that even our good deeds apart from Christ are like filthy rags. There is no way to store up righteousness. Because there is no way of storing up righteousness, you, apart from Christ, are simply accumulating things in this bucket. The scales every day that you live are continuing to tip out of your favor. And there is nothing you can do to add change to this bucket. Everybody tracking with me? Okay, so this is the language. This is the biblical picture. As we await the day of God's wrath. Now, your English translations of that verse that we just read in verse 4, I'm sorry, in verse 5, you're storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath. Probably more appropriately, that language should be capitalized, the day of God's wrath, this fixed and appointed day that the prophets speak of when God will judge man for their sins. Zephaniah 1 is a prime place to go to see this language of the day of the Lord, verses 14 through 16. The great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening fast, the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. The day of wrath is that day. The day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. All of this is God's direction against sin. The day of the Lord will come. So wrath is being revealed from God as people are given over to their sin indirectly, but also one final eternal judgment when God will judge people for their sin. Verse 6, Paul writes, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who practice well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life, which we would say here you can't do apart from Christ. So no one's getting into heaven based on their good works. These things are impossible apart from Christ. But to those who know Christ, we can seek after these things, and thus we will get the reward for our faith in Christ. But, verse 8, for those who are self-seeking, which is everyone apart from Christ, and do not obey the truth, which is everyone apart from Christ, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury 
Two groups. One, glory, honor, immortality. The other, wrath and fury. Now recall, look at the pronouns in this section. The pronoun here specifically is he. This is God's doing. Don't miss this. This is the wrath of God. This is not some mechanical process where we simply accumulate the penalty for our sin, but rather this is God's wrath being poured out. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, we can be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So, apart from Christ, you stand set up to face the full wrath of God. Now, I don't know about you, but if there is a God, I don't want to be on his bad side. I don't want to stand to the wrath of God. We don't talk about a God of wrath very much. Steve Chalk and Alan Mann in their wildly popular book, The Lost Message of Jesus, which um, was the, the basis for Rob Bell's later book, Love Wins, writes this, the Bible never defines God as angry, powerful, or in judgment. In fact, it never defines him as anything but love. Chalk later writes, How then have we come to believe that at the cross, this God of love suddenly decided to vent his anger and wrath on his son? He says that the cross was in fact cosmic child abuse. The wrath of God, in many of our minds, is a totally foreign concept. And challenge to this, Paul Capon in his wonderful book, Is God a Moral Monster, writes this. Maybe the idea of God in the Westerner's mind is just too nice. This is perhaps because we have confused a basic math equation. We've heard the language used often, the biblical language, that God is a God of love. And this is true. Love is representative of the nature and character of God, one aspect of his eternal being. But in most of our minds, the script has flipped on that equation, where now we say love is God. While love is an aspect of God's being, love is not the totality of God's being. To be loving is not totally what it means to be Godlike. In fact, wrath is a very basic component of what it means to be loving. As we will see as we move forward, God's wrath, in contrast to ours, and this is where it gets quite tricky. When you think of wrath, you think of a very negative emotion quite often. This is because your wrath is the kind of wrath you experience when dude cuts you off in traffic. You do stupid things and yell. In contrast to that, God's wrath is not capricious, it's not prideful, it's not arbitrary, it's the just result of human sin. His wrath and anger. This is the attitude of God 
to those on whom his judgment falls. God will, the, the, the text can say, God will judge them in anger. This is why uh, in the next service we'll do parent dedications. Hold up these young infants, my little Willa. We'll hold her up before the Lord and pray over her because she comes in this world built to be a rebel before God. She is a sinner by birth, and apart from God doing something to her heart, she will stand under the wrath of God. Verse 9. There will be tribulation or distress for every human being who does evil, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. The outcome is bleak, friends. Tribulation or distress is coming. In some small microscopic way, this tribulation or distress that is coming is pictured in our physical death. Try as we might, friends, through healthy eating and dietary practicing and exercising and whatever other mystical methods you want to conjure up, you will not stop death forever. You may prolong it, perhaps, maybe, but you will not stop it. And for many of us, we are seeing the downhill slide of that process as our bodies just aren't what they once were. You are seeing tribulation or distress come upon your very physical being as a precursor to what will come upon your eternal being apart from Christ. This eternal death coming by virtue of the rejection of the gospel truths. 2 Thessalonians 1, no need to turn there. The words will be on the screen behind me. Paul writes, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on the day to be glorified in the saints and to be marveled at among those who believed because our testimony to you was believed. Now I know, friends, this, this is not the politically correct sermon, right? Like we're supposed to say in the end, love wins and we're all going to get to heaven and high-five each other. That's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is of a people, a people who are destined to be children of God's wrath, who will live forever apart from him. This eternal death is spoken of using numerous pictures throughout the Bible. Darkness, silence, death, the pit, Gehenna, this valley slope that was prime for the childhood sacrifice of a pagan cult that was pictured as a place of destruction. Jesus himself spoke of hell more than anyone else in the scriptures. In one passage in Matthew 23, he writes, then he will say to those on his left, after saying to those on his right, you come, you have eternal life, he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. 
Then they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will say to them, truly I say to you, as you did not do to the least of these, you did not do to me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Note, note the contrast. Eternal life to one camp and eternal punishment to the other. What we know from the biblical writing on hell is this, that it is conscious forever and torment. So here, again, apart from what many want to believe and perhaps what is in our souls to desire, we're not talking about annihilation here. They're just wiped out, never to again experience pain, not even aware of really where they are, what's happening to them but conscious, they're conscious of what's happening forever in torment on the forthcoming day that the Lord has appointed. Matthew uses the phrase five times that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the theme of hell. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. I always picture the notion of gnashing of teeth and regret, right? Regret, weeping, conscious, torment. John and Revelation, you can turn there. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. <clears throat> While this book is loaded with imagery and pictures, and this is a quite supplemental point to this morning's sermon. I don't want to delve into all the depths of the book of Revelation. We're given some type of prophetic picture of what will happen on this forthcoming day that the Lord has appointed. As John sees in his vision, uh, I'll begin reading in verse 9, Revelation 14, verse 9. Another angel, a third, followed them, and in a loud voice said, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, now don't get too cryptic here with us, we see that this in Ephesians 2 is the natural result of the world system. We're all fallen to prince the power of air, the spirit that is now at work, the sons of disobedience. So this would be the camp of those who have not believed the gospel, the camp of those who are disobedient to the claims of Christ that have not put themselves under the lordship of Christ. In verse 10, are not saved. He will, so to this camp, he will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They will have no rest day or night. these worshipers of the beast and of its image, whoever receives the, the mark of its name. <clears throat> That's that. You know, that, that's tough to read 
because we know people. <laughs> you know? We know people that that paragraph is a, is a reality. It is, for some, a present reality. For some, it is a sure and coming reality. Those who have rejected the eternal gospel, God's wrath, get this language, is poured out full strength. I don't exactly know what that means. In the ancient culture, wines, the cup would have been cut or diluted. You couldn't handle consuming it full strength. So here in contrast, this cup of God's wrath is poured out full strength. The idea would be, and this boggles my mind, that things like the exile, plagues, war that we see in the Old Testament are cut versions of God's wrath. They're not the, the full strength version. So, what's the closest we come to the full strength version of God's wrath? The closest picture we can see? It's the cross. Right? What happened to Jesus was the wrath of God poured out full strength on as hard as it is to imagine, on the child of God's wrath, Jesus. John writes two, two further images there in Romans, or Revelation 14, that this future time will be a harvest, some appointed time where the consequences will come in, or it will be like a great stone vat, this massive press of grapes, Violent and complete. Now, the typical objection at this point is this. Matt, you got to chill out with this deal, Bo. Tone it down because the idea of hell is just manipulative, right? You're just trying to scare people. Another judgment house gone wild, right? Hell is only manipulative if hell is not real. Consider your parenting. It is manipulative to threaten a kid with a spanking that you're never going to give. We see it happen all the time in the Walmart checkout line, right? Kid, I'm going to beat you for that, knowing full well that that parent has never spanked that child in their life, right? So to threaten a spanking that's never coming is surely manipulative, but it is terrible parenting and unfair if there are sure consequences to come to not warn someone. It is unfair to not warn them if there could be punishment. So, in light of the biblical counsel, there is coming a day, and so Matthew 3, 7, is my plea to you, flee from the coming wrath. Flee from the coming wrath. 
This would be my plea to you this morning and would help explain what we mean when we say that someone is saved. What are they saved from? They're saved from the wrath of God. This is why you don't get saved 10 or 11 or 12 times. You're saved once. You are a dead sinner subject to the wrath of God. You are saved from God's judgment permanently and forever. For you who are apart from Christ this morning, God's kindness is meant to do what Paul writes. It is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness is demonstrated to you this day, giving you the space to breathe, the day to celebrate, and for whatever reason for you to sit in these pews. Because God is patient, that word literally means the length of God's wrath. He extends the length of his wrath. In Exodus 34, beautiful passage, when Moses sees the glory of the God, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. So the Lord passes and gives his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This gets repeated throughout the scriptures. Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. If you this day do not have clarity, laser-like clarity on the eternal state of your soul, settle that matter today. If you fear that you may stand under the eternal wrath of God, do not leave this place without praying and begging God to save you. If you need help with that, if you want to talk to someone, the pastors would love to pray and talk to you about how you can leave this day assured that you will never stand under the wrath of God. How can we have that laser-like confidence? Because of the cross. Because the wrath of God for a subset of humanity, not those who are in Adam, but those who are now in Christ, the wrath of God that was rightly due your sin was fully and permanently poured out on Christ. So, for those of you that are in Christ this day, A sermon on the wrath of God is meant to lead you to worship. If we, any of us in the room, avoid God's wrath, it is only by the grace of God. None of us are getting to heaven and high-fiving Jesus and saying, we did it. That's not the way it works, as we will see in the coming weeks. If you are a Christian The best news this day is some past tense verbs. Never thought you'd hear that, right? That was your worst enemy in English class. But the best news for you this day is the fact that verses 1, 2, and 3 of this text are speaking of those who were dead in their trespasses and sins, who were children of God's wrath. This is a past tense reality. Because of Romans 5, 9. 
Therefore, we have been justified by His blood, and much more, we will be saved by Him from the wrath of God. We'll be saved from the wrath of God. So, friends, those of us who are in Christ, if that does not move your heart to worship, I I don't know what will. Moms, if that doesn't propel your heart to godly sacrifice and service, I, I don't know what will. If that doesn't enliven your heart with hope this day, that you have confidence you will not face the wrath of God. That, friends, is as good a news as I got. And that's really good news. So let's pray and respond to that news as we close. God, it is, uh, it's hard um, to speak and think about these things uh, without tears. Um, tears of sorrow. Um, tears of love for those that we know, that we care for, some of those in our very families. Um, that stand condemned before you. We pray that in your good kindness you would you would save them. Not this trite, superficial stuff that we talk about often in our culture, but we pray that you would move them from being children of wrath to children of your love. From sons of disobedience to sons of God. It's also hard to not cry tears of joy thinking that I am son of your wrath that has become a child of God. That regardless of how messy this life gets and what troubles come, um, I, I don't have to fear this day that you have appointed because the judgment for my sin was given to Christ. And Father, that propels uh, my heart to thanks this day, propels my heart to worship, to remember the beauty of this good news. That's what I pray that 
your word would do for my friends as we sing, as we pray, as we think and meditate. I want to give you just the space of a minute or two before the band leads and sings uh, to quietly reflect, pray, to confess, to meditate on the truths that you've heard this morning.